section thirty of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine continued jonathan swift sixteen sixty seven seventeen forty five in each of marlowe's tragedies we have the picture of a man dominated by a single passion the lust of power for its own sake in each we see that a powerful man without self-control is like a dangerous instrument in the hands of a child and the tragedy ends in the destruction of the man by the ungoverned power which he possesses the life of swift is just such a living tragedy he had the power of gaining wealth like the hero of the jew of malta yet he used it scornfully and in sad irony left what remained to him of a large property to found a hospital for lunatics by hard work he won enormous literary power and used it to satirize our common humanity he wrested political power from the hands of the tories and used it to insult the very men who had helped him and who held his fate in their hands by his dominant personality he exercised a curious power over women and used it brutally to make them feel their inferiority being loved supremely by two good women he brought sorrow and death to both and endless misery to himself so his power brought always tragedy in its wake it is only when we remember his life of struggle and disappointment and bitterness that we can appreciate the personal quality in his satire and perhaps find some sympathy for this greatest genius of all the augustan writers life swift was born in dublin of english parents in sixteen sixty seven his father died before he was born his mother was poor and swift though proud as lucifer was compelled to accept aid from relatives who gave it grudgingly at the kilkenny school and especially at dublin university he detested the curriculum reading only what appealed to his own nature but since a degree was necessary to his success he was compelled to accept it as a favor from the examiners whom he despised in his heart after graduation the only position open to him was with a distant relative sir william temple who gave him the position of private secretary largely on account of the unwelcome relationship temple was a statesman and an excellent diplomatist but he thought himself to be a great writer as well and he entered into a literary controversy concerning the relative merits of the classics and modern literature swift's first notable work the battle of the books written at this time but not published is a keen satire upon both parties in the controversy the first touch of bitterness shows itself here for swift was in a galling position for a man of his pride knowing his intellectual superiority to the man who employed him and yet being looked upon as a servant and eating at the servant's table thus he spent ten of the best years of his life in the pretty moor park surrey growing more bitter each year and steadily cursing his fate nevertheless he read and studied widely and after his position with temple grew unbearable quarrelled with his patron took orders and entered the church of england some years later we find him settled in the little church of laracor ireland 
a country which he disliked intensely but whither he went because no other living was open to him in ireland faithful to his church duties swift labored to better the condition of the unhappy people around him never before had the poor of his parishes been so well cared for but swift chafed under his yoke growing more and more irritated as he saw small men advance to large positions while he remained unnoticed in a little country church largely because he was too proud and too blunt with those who might have advanced him while at laracor he finished his tale of a tub a satire on the various churches of the day which was published in london with the battle of the books in seventeen o four the work brought him into notice as the most powerful satirist of the age and he soon gave up his church to enter the strife of political politics the cheap pamphlet was then the most powerful political weapon known and as swift had no equal at pamphlet writing he soon became a veritable dictator for several years especially from seventeen ten to seventeen thirteen swift was one of the most important figures in london the whigs feared the lash of his satire the tories feared to lose his support he was courted flattered cajoled on every side but the use he made of his new power is sad to contemplate an unbearable arrogance took possession of him lords statesmen even ladies were compelled to sue for his favor and to apologize for every fancied slight to his egoism it is at this time that he writes in his journal to stella mr secretary told me the duke of buckingham had been talking much about me and desired my acquaintance i answered it could not be for he had not yet made sufficient advances then shrewsbury said he thought the duke was not used to making advances i said i could not help that for i always expected advances in proportion to men's quality and more from a duke than any other man writing to the duchess of queensbury he says i am glad you know your duty for it has been a known and established rule above twenty years in england that the first advances have been constantly made me by all ladies who aspire to my acquaintance and the greater their quality the greater were their advances when the tories went out of power swift's position became uncertain he expected and had probably been promised a bishopric in england with a seat among the peers of the realm but the tories offered him instead the place of dean of st patrick's cathedral in dublin it was galling to a man of his proud spirit but after his merciless satire on religion in the tale of a tub any ecclesiastical position in england was rendered impossible dublin was the best he could get and he accepted it bitterly once more cursing the fate which he had brought upon himself with his return to ireland begins the last act in the tragedy of his life his best-known literary work gulliver's travels was done here but the bitterness of life grew slowly to insanity and a frightful personal sorrow of which he never spoke reached its climax in the death of esther johnson a beautiful young woman who had loved swift ever since the two had met in temple's household and to whom he had written his journal to stella 
during the last years of his life a brain disease of which he had shown frequent symptoms fastened its terrible hold upon swift and he became by turns an idiot and a madman he died in seventeen forty five and when his will was opened it was found that he had left all his property to found st patrick's asylum for lunatics and incurables it stands to-day as the most suggestive monument of his peculiar genius the works of swift from swift's life one can readily foresee the kind of literature he will produce taken together his works are a monstrous satire on humanity and the spirit of that satire is shown clearly in a little incident of his first days in london there was in the city at that time a certain astrologer named partridge who duped the public by calculating nativities from the stars and selling a yearly almanac predicting future events swift who hated all shams wrote with a great show of learning his famous bickerstaff almanac containing predictions for the year seventeen o eight as determined by the unerring stars as swift rarely signed his name to any literary work letting it stand or fall on its own merits his burlesque appeared over the pseudonym of isaac bickerstaff a name afterwards made famous by steele in the tatler among the predictions was the following my first prediction is but a trifle yet i will mention it to show how ignorant these sottish pretenders to astrology are in their own concerns it relates to partridge the almanac maker i have consulted the star of his nativity by my own rules and find he will infallibly die upon the twenty ninth of march next about eleven at night of a raging fever therefore i advise him to consider of it and settle his affairs in time on march thirtieth the day after the prediction was to be fulfilled there appeared in the newspapers a letter from a revenue officer giving the details of partridge's death with the doings of the bailiff and the coffin-maker and on the following morning appeared an elaborate elegy of mr partridge when poor partridge who suddenly found himself without customers published a denial of the burial swift answered with an elaborate vindication of isaac bickerstaff in which he proved by astrological rules that partridge was dead and that the man now in his place was an impostor trying to cheat the heirs out of their inheritance character of swift's satire this ferocious joke is suggestive of all swift's satires against any case of hypocrisy or injustice he sets up a remedy of precisely the same kind only more atrocious and defends his plan with such seriousness that the satire overwhelms the reader with a sense of monstrous falsity thus his solemn argument to prove that the abolishing of christianity may be attended with some inconveniences is such a frightful satire upon the abuses of christianity by its professed followers that it is impossible for us to say whether swift intended to point out needed reforms or to satisfy his conscience Note, it is only fair to point out that swift wrote this and two other pamphlets on religion at a time when he knew that they would damage if not destroy his own prospects of political advancement End of note. or to perpetrate a joke on the church as he had done on poor partridge so also with his modest proposal 
concerning the children of ireland which sets up the proposition that poor irish farmers ought to raise children as dainties to be eaten like roast pigs on the tables of prosperous englishmen in this most characteristic work it is impossible to find swift or his motive the injustice under which ireland suffered her perversity in raising large families to certain poverty and the indifference of english politicians to her suffering and protests are all mercilessly portrayed but why that is still the unanswered problem of swift's life and writings tale of a tub swift's two greatest satires are his tale of a tub and gulliver's travels the tale began as a grim exposure of the alleged weaknesses of three principal forms of religious belief catholic lutheran and calvinist as opposed to the anglican but it ended in a satire upon all science and philosophy swift explains his whimsical title by the custom of mariners in throwing out a tub to a whale in order to occupy the monster's attention and divert it from an attack upon the ship which only proves how little swift knew of whales or sailors but let that pass his book is a tub thrown out to the enemies of church and state to keep them occupied from further attacks or criticism and the substance of the argument is that all churches and indeed all religion and science and statesmanship are errant hypocrisy the best-known part of the book is the allegory of the old man who died and left a coat which is christian truth to each of his three sons peter martin and jack with minute directions for its care and use these three names stand for catholics lutherans and calvinists and the way in which the sons evade their father's will and change the fashion of their garment is part of the bitter satire upon all religious sects though it professes to defend the anglican church that institution fares perhaps worse than the others for nothing is left to her but a thin cloak of custom under which to hide her alleged hypocrisy gulliver's travels in gulliver's travels the satire grows more unbearable strangely enough this book upon which swift's literary fame generally rests was not written from any literary motive but rather as an outlet for the author's own bitterness against fate and human society it is still read with pleasure as robinson crusoe is read for the interesting adventures of the hero and fortunately those who read it generally overlook its degrading influence and motive gulliver's travels records the pretended four voyages of one lemuel gulliver and his adventures in four astounding countries the first book tells of his voyage and shipwreck in lilliput where the inhabitants are about as tall as one's thumb and all their acts and motives are on the same dwarfish scale in the petty quarrels of these dwarfs we are supposed to see the littleness of humanity the statesmen who obtain place and favor by cutting monkey capers on the tight-rope before their sovereign and the two great parties 
the little indians and big indians who plunge the country into civil war over the momentous question of whether an egg should be broken on its big or its little end are satires on the politics of swift's own day and generation the style is simple and convincing the surprising situations and adventures are as absorbing as those of defoe's masterpiece and altogether it is the most interesting of swift's satires on the second voyage gulliver is abandoned in brobdingnag where the inhabitants are giants and everything is done upon an enormous scale the meanness of humanity seems all the more detestable in view of the greatness of these superior beings when gulliver tells about his own people their ambitions and wars and conquests the giants can only wonder that such great venom could exist in such little insects in the third voyage gulliver continues his adventures in laputa and this is a satire upon all the scientists and philosophers laputa is a flying island held up in the air by a lodestone and all the professors of the famous academy at lagado are of the same airy constitution the philosopher who worked eight years to extract sunshine from cucumbers is typical of swift's satiric treatment of all scientific problems it is in this voyage that we hear of the struhlbrugs a ghastly race of men who are doomed to live upon earth after losing hope and desire for life the picture is all the more terrible in view of the last years of swift's own life in which he was compelled to live on a burden to himself and his friends in these three voyages the evident purpose is to strip off the veil of habit and custom with which men deceive themselves and show the crude vices of humanity as swift fancies he sees them in the fourth voyage the merciless satire is carried out to its logical conclusion this brings us to the land of the huinums in which horses superior and intelligent creatures are the ruling animals all our interest however is centred on the yahoos a frightful race having the form and appearance of men but living in unspeakable degradation miscellaneous works the journal to stella written chiefly in the years seventeen ten seventeen thirteen for the benefit of esther johnson is interesting to us for two reasons it is first an excellent commentary on contemporary characters and political events by one of the most powerful and original minds of the age and second in its love passages and purely personal descriptions it gives us the best picture we possess of swift himself at the summit of his power and influence as we read now its words of tenderness for the woman who loved him and who brought almost the only ray of sunlight into his life we can only wonder and be silent entirely different are his drapier's letters a model of political harangue and of popular argument which roused an unthinking english public and did much benefit to ireland by preventing the politicians plan of debasing the irish coinage swift's poems though vigorous and original like defoe's of the same period are generally satirical often coarse and seldom rise above doggerel 
unlike his friend addison swift saw in the growing polish and decency of society only a mask for hypocrisy and he often used his verse to shock the newborn modesty by pointing out some native ugliness which his diseased mind discovered under every beautiful exterior character of swift's prose that swift is the most original writer of his time and one of the greatest masters of english prose is undeniable directness vigor simplicity mark every page among writers of that age he stands almost alone in his disdain of literary effects keeping his objects steadily before him he drives straight on to the end with a convincing power that has never been surpassed in our language even in his most grotesque creations the reader never loses the sense of reality of being present as an eye-witness of the most impossible events so powerful and convincing is swift's prose defoe had the same power but in writing robinson crusoe for instance his task was comparatively easy since his hero and his adventures were both natural while swift gives reality to pygmies giants and the most impossible situations as easily as if he were writing of facts notwithstanding these excellent qualities the ordinary reader will do well to confine himself to gulliver's travels and a book of well-chosen selections for it must be confessed the bulk of swift's work is not wholesome reading it is too terribly satiric and destructive it emphasizes the faults and failings of humanity and so runs counter to the general course of our literature which from cunewulf to tennyson follows the ideal as merlin followed the gleam note see tennyson's merlin and the gleam end of note and is not satisfied till the hidden beauty of man's soul and the divine purpose of his struggle are manifest End of section thirty